Hey everyone, and welcome to the second part of a conversation with LC. In today's episode, we're going to hear more about his role, what he enjoys when he's not at work, and then also what his advice is to those who wish to pursue a career outside of academia. We hope you enjoy the episode. I'll now hand over to Elsie. Since we started talking about food, um, which is like my favorite topic in the world, um, when did you first decide on starting the, the chemical cook hashtag? And <laughs> so, so it was, um, I guess it was, you know, peak pandemic sometime in, in the middle of two, 2020. Um, during the pandemic, I really leaned into to cooking and, and, and taking more risks as someone who cooks. Like I, I was always a decent cook and I often, you know, cook for my family and, but I never sort of took it to the next level. But during the pandemic, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe I just had more time to myself to consider things that I hadn't tried before. Maybe I just became more ambitious. And to be honest, I have a really good friend, um, Jason Birch in Montreal, who's a phenomenal cook and he's always inspired me to try new things and, and he and I were talking and, and I was trying all these things and I don't know we started tweeting pictures of what we were making and then other people started joining in and then I, I think it was um it was Jason who at some point tweeted something and he used the hashtag chemist who cook and uh and then I started using it and then Kathy Crudden chimed in and then somebody said like oh there should be an account where like you know this stuff all gets retweeted a little bit like real-time chem and I had met some of the real-time chem folks and I I was like oh yeah, that, that sounds pretty easy. And sure enough, I created an account. I called it Chemist Who Cooks. I started just retweeting the hashtag. Um, and that's all that account does is it retweets that hashtag uh, when people use it or when the account is tagged. And it sort of created a, a community almost instantly. And so I, I don't think that that was the first, like that tweet by Jason was not the first time someone ever used that. Um, but it was definitely the first time that I had seen it. And uh, it was between that conversation, online conversation between him, Kathy, and I that um, really on a whim, I decided to create the account and just to see if, if, a, com- if a community would build around it. <clears throat> Sorry. And so it's been kind of amazing, uh, you know, that that account has, um, you know, thousands of followers now. And every day or every other day I go in there and I retweet, you know, a lot of really nice looking dishes by a lot of different people. And it's actually really, been really fun. Um, and it's really, um, you know, built a community with folks that um, are not like in, in my chemistry sphere, right? Like I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that this last year and a half has taught me is that there used to be a people that I interacted with online, um, on chem Twitter, if you will, that uh, were closer to my brand of chemistry, whether it's synthetic organic chemistry, whether it's catalysis, whether it's people that are interested in pharma. Um, and then between the chemist who cooks and then the social isolation socials that that uh, that Stu uh, Cantrell and I organized, um, I've started to meet a lot more people that are outside my direct field field of chemistry. People that I probably would have never even met at conferences because we wouldn't be going to the same conferences, and, and that's been really really fun. And that's probably the funnest part of chemist who cooks. I would say is we're all inspiring each other with the dishes that we make, and you know we're sharing tips and tricks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's led to me buying a lot of kitchen equipment. But other than that, I, you know, I think it's the, it's the interactions that have, that have been really great. Yeah, totally. And I think I see now there's kind of extensions beyond that as now. So it's like chemists who read and chemists who bake as well. So it's like, you know, it's yes. kind of spawned, yeah, lots of uh, kind of sister hashtags. So, yeah, yeah I, I would say it's kind of, um, and Jason tells this story all the time, like the reason he used chemists who cook is because 
he and I in the past had had used chemist who golf as a hashtag and that that dates back to six or seven years ago and that's why he used Kevin who cooks that day and not really knowing that that others had been using it and so it kind of um, you're right it absolutely created this sort of uh, stem if you will <laughs> um, which is which is fun right I think I think it's it's a great way to humanize scientists I think there's um you know if you look at the stereotype of scientists, whether you're reading about them in books or you're watching them on TV, they, they come off as people who have no other interests other than science and that their entire life is dedicated to science. There's sort of that mythical uh, figure. And you see that even in, you know, biographies of famous scientists. And I think, you know, hey, that's not healthy. <laughs> so people having other, other interests uh, and hobbies is important. And then B, I just think it's not true, right? I, I think that uh, every chemist that I've met has interests outside of their science. It doesn't take anything away from their science and the passion they have for it. And I think this is a great way for us to to show the younger generation and, and people that are coming up in the field that are worried about that, that you, you can, you know, you can be a scientist and have all these other interests and have time to spend doing those things. Yeah, if anything, I think it's more important that people have that downtime away from, you know, whether it be the lab or computer of your theoretical, you know, chemist, because, that gives your brain that time to kind of relax and yeah you always have that subconscious kind of thinking around your work so then you come back to it probably a lot more refreshed and you know that's really important so yeah there's there's definitely and, and this i think is has even been studied right um mm. people tend to have their best ideas when they're not actively working on whatever it is that they have to think about right they they're in the shower in the morning or they're driving into work uh, or they're you know they're, they're on their bicycle or walking for their commute and they're inspired all of a sudden it's because your brain is sort of you know in this stage where it's open right it's not focused yet and um and so that that's definitely true and, and that's been true for me right um so so i i i totally agree with what you just said brilliant um i had a quick question actually like related to your pictures that you put up of your food i personally think yes. the lighting's really good and i was really curious how you get the lighting <laughs> to be do you have like so overhead lighting or something <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so this worked out really well. Um, I don't know how I found this. I think I found it by mistake. It wasn't designed. So I have uh, lighting under my um, uh, cabinets. So, you know, like you, you have the countertop and then you have like the backsplash and then you have your cabinets and there's lights underneath there. And so if I put the plates of food under the cabinet and I turn those lights on, it has phenomenal lighting. And when you take the picture, you don't have a shadow of the phone like on the food. Um, so yeah, it, it just turned out to be a really good setup to take pictures of food. Um, it wasn't designed that way and I found, definitely found it by mistake. But I noticed when I started taking or trying to take pictures of it in other places in my kitchen, I was like, ah, oh, I always have the shadow and I'm like, the light's not good. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. I think this this might be something I, I serendipitously <laughs> fell into that looks well. But yeah, lighting makes a huge difference, right? Um, yeah. When you take pictures. Yeah, it makes Amazing. it look really good. Even, even so better than this, yeah. Serendipitous <laughs> discoveries and, yeah, awesome. Yep, so, absolutely. <laughs> aside from cooking then, you know, we talked there about golfing. Kind of what, what is it that you enjoy when you're not working? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to me, it's um, – golf is this bizarre thing. So, so when I was a kid, uh, my two older brothers um, were big golfers. Um, and um, – you know, part of me wanting to play golf was probably just me wanting to spend time with my brothers, right? They're, they're much older than I am because I'm the youngest of five children. And we didn't spend a lot of time together when I was very young. But 
when I got to an age where I could join them on the golf course, even if it was just to carry their clubs, by the way, um, that was time that I cherished. Um, and then later in life, um, probably when I was an undergrad, when I sort of started playing golf by myself, it was always a treat to spend time with my brothers. Um, and, 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 you know, they were really, they were really good at teaching me how to play and, 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 you know, I never took formal lessons or anything. And so there's, there's a, a, an important sort of emotional and family connection that comes to golf. Now, what I would say is in the last three years, um, and really in the last two years, I've really started playing a lot more. And part of that was just the pandemic, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I take the pandemic very seriously. I, I try to make, you know, informed decision based on the science. And so in, in that first year, we weren't going anywhere. <laughs> we weren't going. Um, and, and when we were, it was just to go into a grocery store and, and pick something out. But... Um, I was able to spend time outdoors, um, you know, playing golf during the time when there was really nothing else that was really safe to do. And that, that became kind of, um, you know, there's something about um, that activity for me, which is almost meditative. You know, you're, you're out there by yourself or maybe with a close friend. Um, you, you're walking or driving the course. There's, um, the activity is hard enough that you need to focus. You, your mind has to step away from the stresses of your daily life. And those stresses can be work or they can be other things in your life. But to me, there's something that's, um, you know, I really disconnect from everything else that I'm doing when I'm on the golf course. Um, and it's, it's almost therapeutic, I would say. And so I kind of stumbled into it. You know, the, the pandemic was a stressful time. I have three young children. You know, we were trying to figure out how to make our life work. And I started going out on the golf course once or twice a week during the pandemic. Now I go maybe once, once a week or once every other week. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it reminds me, uh, some people talk about how going for long runs gives them the same sort of, um, you know, boost in endorphins and it sort of, you know, clears their mind. I have the exact same, um, same reaction to golf. And then other than that, you know, I, <laughs> for me, having three children, uh, a job, that that is uh you know that i that i love and, and that i spend a lot of time on uh, the golf and the cooking there's not much time left after that um i um you know i love to listen to podcasts and audiobooks um and i usually do that during my commute um because i have a somewhat long commute and uh, i love sharing you know what i learn from those from those uh, interactions uh, and I try to spend time with, you know, the people that I care about outside of outside of that, which now is starting to be possible now that we're all vaccinated. Um, but I don't have like a lot of other hobbies. Uh, there's not not enough time left <laughs> after that. That's, that's fair. Wow, uh, what's your favorite uh, podcast? I guess one of the fears. What's the one? This, 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 yeah. this one, this one, surely. No, no. that's a, that's a <laughs> tricky <laughs> question. A, no, yeah. aside from this one, because that's going to be very okay, wide. Okay. Aside that's from a, this one, no, okay. no, no. to be fair to all other podcasts out there. Yes. So, so there's actually a few. So I've started listening um, again in the last year, and, and now I re- listen to it pretty religiously. The Daily, which is a podcast by the New York Times, right? They pick a story, they go deep into it. I love the news, but I can't consume it anymore because it's in the U.S. It's so polarized, um, and it's 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 it, it actually angers me to read the news. Um, the Daily tends to pick topics that uh, are important, but that are not necessarily on the political divide. Often, I mean, every once in a while, it does. So I listen to that. I think that's a good way for me to stay informed um, and to get a good sense of what's going on in the world. Um, I do uh, also like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, which only really comes out in the summer 
right? So it's called Revisionist History, which is very, very good. Um, and then another one that I listen to pretty often is actually a sports talk show podcast um, called The Tony Kornheiser Show. It's three times a week. And um, it's a, back to what we were talking about earlier about being able to disconnect, right? I mean, he, he, he rants about random stuff. He talks about football. He talks about baseball. He talks about, you know, soccer very rarely or hockey. Um, and it's just kind of a way to kind of escape a little bit. Um, and, it, and, it, and because it's sort of current events, you, if you miss an episode, you just don't listen to it. It's not a big deal. Whereas like some other episodes, like if you miss one, you have to go back and listen to it. You know? So I kind of like those daily things or, or weekly things where there isn't like a, a need to kind of follow it too much. Um, so those are probably the ones I listen to the most. I mean, in the past, I've listened to things like Radiolab, which I like. Um, and, uh, and, and Michael Lewis's podcast or Adam Grant's podcast called Work Life, which if you're a, a, you know, a newly working professional, I highly recommend the Work Life podcast. It's very good. Um, he's an he's a, a organizational psychologist. He talks a lot about how to manage your work life. Um, and uh, that's also sort of a, a few episodes every season. Oh, it's Thank fascinating. I'd, I'd, I'd not heard of the daily, but that sounds, yeah, that sounds interesting. I think we have oh, a same in the yeah. UK at the moment where, yeah, the news is very polarizing. And to be honest, it's quite negative still because, you know, you get the daily figures and whatnot. And, you know, it's all the same, yeah. same rubbish, you know, it's just not, yeah, not conducive to entertainment, let's say. Yeah. Um, and even yeah. when they take on subjects like this week, there was a podcast about sort of the, the challenges uh, of, of passing this specific spending plan that, that uh, the government is trying to pass and sort of the, you know, they'll do like a spotlight on one of the individuals that, you know, and what they want out of this. And, and I, you know, you get to hear about people that maybe are antagonized in news or celebrated, but from a different angle. And um, I think it's kind of one way to get a little bit of that diverse perspective as well, because otherwise we get kind of in an echo chamber. Okay. Uh, definitely. So what's the last audio book you listened to then? You uh, touched there. That oh, I just, uh, I, so the last one I just finished is actually uh, the uh, biography of Dave Grohl. So uh, what's it called? Let me pull it up here. It's called The Storyteller. Um, and he, he just released it. I think it came out in the last month. Um, the um, It was great. I, I took my son up to Montreal two weeks ago. And we went to a hockey game together. It was opening night. It was the first time that the Bell Center, the arena where Montreal Canadiens play, was full since the beginning of the pandemic because now they have a vaccine mandate. And uh, my son is taking drumming lessons. He's 12 years old. And I was trying to tell him about, you know, some drummers. And so he and I talked about Dave Grohl. And then I saw the book and I was like, hey, we could listen to this. And so we actually listened to it on our drive to Montreal. So basically, drive up, drive down is, is a little over 12 hours. So we're able to listen to the entire book. Um, and it was good. It was good. I, I'm a big fan of biographies in general, I would say. I, I, there's something about learning about someone else's life and sort of how they think about the world and what they did that I think can, can often be translatable. Um, and for a while, I, I, I only read biographies. I kind of went on a biography binge. Um, but I would say in the last year, as I wasn't really commuting that much because I was working from home for a large portion of the pandemic, I haven't read as many audiobooks or, or listened to as many audiobooks um, as I did in the past, because I just wasn't spending as much time in the car. I mean, I, on a normal day, I spend, you know, well over an hour and a half, close to two hours in the car commuting. And so I, I can make a lot of progress um, when, I, when I listen to books that way. I hear that some people listen to, like to listen to them on, on 1.5 or 
two five speed. Do you listen to the yes. normal speed? <laughs> no, uh, long- no, that's <laughs> what my wife does. My wife listens to everything. She listens to audio, whether it's a mm. podcast or a book. She listens to on one point five or even faster, depending on who's reading it. I mean, yeah. she and I were listening to oh, what was the book that we were listening to together. So every once in a while, if we're you know we have a road trip plan, we're going to listen to a book together. Um, and uh, oh, I can't remember what the book was, but <laughs> you know I was like, can we just listen it, listen to it at normal speed? Because I can't. Yeah. Oh, it was Michael J. Fox's biography, uh, his third biography because he's written three. And uh, yeah, I, it, that, that doesn't work for me. I mean, part of it is I think when I listen to these things, my mind wanders, right? I'm kind of, you know, I'm driving or whatever. I'm not like sitting there listening to a book. I'm doing something else at the same time. And so if my mind wanders at 1.5 or 1.8 speed, then I I might miss like a significant portion and I'm lost. So maybe it depends on on how you listen to it. No, I can relate. I tried uh, 1.25 speed and found that was even a bit too quick. The last biography actually I listened to was... uh, I think Jobs by Walter, Walter Isaacson. So it's Steve oh, Jobs' yeah. biography. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I really enjoyed one. that one. So. You know what? The, the most surprising mm. uh, the most surprising biography that I ever read, or like that I liked but didn't think I would like, um, mm. is Rob Lowe's first book. So Rob Lowe, um, I forget. I think it's a story I only tell my friends or something like that, his first biography. My wife, at the time, I... I was commuting from Canada when we just moved to when I had just moved to the United States. I was working here during the week and driving back home every weekend. My son was less than two years old, um, and we were in the process of you know finding a place to live and stuff. So for about uh, over six months, uh, I commuted back and forth, and uh, my wife and I would listen to the same book. So we would kind of have something you know that we were sort of doing together, and she's like, "Oh, I want to read this Rob Lowe book." I'm like, "Ugh, seriously, like Rob Lowe." And the only thing I knew Rob Lowe from was West Wing, because I'm a huge West Wing fan. Um, and so I'm like, okay, fine, I'll read it. And it was maybe the best biography I've ever read. It, it's it's very, very well written. And, and I, I thought it was a really interesting read. So if there's people out there that love biographies, I recommend Rob Lowe's first book. He's written two, but his first one is definitely the best. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of biographies. There's something satisfying in, in reading, especially biographies of like well-known people or successful people. Because you, you always think that like, oh, you just they just got it like this, but it's never the case. So you just go through all yeah. the details of how they suffered and how they struggled. And it's like, oh, it's just so interesting. Really yeah, it's important, right? I mean, what you just touched on there, I think, is really important. I've, I've actually used this. I was inspired, I don't know, three or four years ago, there was a, an article in Science. You know, the, the last page of Science Magazine is a work-life column, which is very good. I, it, for those of you who who have access, you know, I, I would read that every week when it comes out. It's very good. And there was a work-life column that talked exactly about what you just said, right? Sort of like, how do we get really successful people to sort of tell the real story of how it happened and all of the challenges they had to overcome in a non-sort of polished version of their biography, right? And um, and there's a, this came out of work that was at, happening at NYU where they would actually bring in a seminar speaker. And, you know, there's always like the little biography blurb that they put on. But instead of having a biography blurb that reads like everybody's biography blurb, which is, you know, they won all these awards and they went to these fancy schools, it was filled with all of their failures as well. And it's sort of a way, again, of, of sort of showing uh, sh- showing people that, you know, even the most successful people had to overcome things. And even if things don't work out right from the beginning, they, they may work out in the end. And so I actually created for myself that sort of 
real life biography. And, and I use it with people in my organization, especially on the professional context. Like people worry a lot about, you know, their performance reviews and they worry a lot about how fast they're getting promoted. And so seeing someone who, you know, is essentially head of the department now and realizing that it's not like they were the best of all their peers their entire life. Like they were able to just, you know, make the most of their opportunities. And sometimes that, you know, that meant that things didn't work out, I think is, is helpful. So I totally agree with you on that. So, so who would, uh, importantly, I guess, who would, uh, who would narrate your or, or, yeah, autobiography? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, to be fair, I, I think the best uh, autobiographies or biographies, well, I guess I, I've never read, uh, this doesn't really apply to biographies, but certainly to autobiographies are the ones that are read by the author. Um, what I found is audiobooks that are read by the person who wrote the book are always more interesting to me. Like there's something about hearing it in their own voice. Um, and Dave Grohl's biography is like that. Like he's the one reading it. Um, I always find that to be the best. Yeah, when I was um, when I was an undergrad, I had a roommate who, uh, who was an engineering major and he would walk into the room every once in a while. And he'd be like, you know, one day when they're making a movie about us, and then he would like whip out like some actor's name, you know. I'm like, I don't think anybody's ever gonna make a movie about us, but you just reminded me of that memory. So thanks for that. <laughs> That's brilliant. So talking about podcasts, because we touched on that, uh, we are a huge fan of your um, and and Danny Shu's uh, podcast, Farm to Table. So could you touch more on on that a bit? And sure. Well, first, thanks for the compliment. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad people are enjoying it. Um, it was, um, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting story of how this sort of came about. So, one, I think it goes all the way back to 2015 when I first started uh, thinking about personal development as uh, in a strength-based way. So, in 2015, or I guess it was 2013. Sorry, um, I went to uh, a week-long training at Gallup on strength-based development. And uh, part of that is knowing what your strengths are and part of it is sort of how do you identify other people's strengths? And then how do you use those strengths to develop yourself? Like how do you feed that fire, if you will? And uh, when, I, when I came out of that, um, I had communication number one in my strength profile. And part of that is you know, my, my ability with words and my, my comfort in these types of settings or in public speaking. And I think part of it is also the way that I think. Like I if I have a problem I need to solve or if I'm trying to brainstorm, I will do much better if I have someone with me that I can talk to, right? And, and I've been able to use that um, over the years more deliberately, you know, once I, I, um, I was able to sort of understand that strength. And so it's always been kind of, um, you know, I, I always look for opportunities to be able to leverage my communication skills uh, on behalf of my organization or others, um, you know, to, to, to basically promote what we do. And, uh, and so I think that that's sort of a baseline, if you will. And then from there, um, I was at a business conference in, I guess it was the World of Business Forum in late 2019, which is in New York City every year. So it's easy for me to drive in. And there was a talk by Randy Zuckerberg, who um, she's, she's actually Mark Zuckerberg's sister, but she has her own company, which deals more in sort of, um, marketing and social media and um she 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 gave uh, a talk about marketing and social media and she was talking about how subject matter expertise and uh, podcasts are currently in demand or at least they were in 2019 and she felt like there was probably a window of two or three years where if you're a subject matter expert in a topic 
the, the odds that there's another subject matter expert talking about the same thing on a podcast would probably be lower. Um, and I was thinking to myself at the time, like, oh, there aren't a lot of chemistry podcasts, right? And if you go back to 2019, maybe the Chemical Engineering News podcast was up and running, maybe the Chemistry World one, but certainly not individuals like yourselves and, and like some of the other chemistry podcasts that have appeared in the last couple of years. So that was sort of a little thing in the back of my head. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. And uh, Merck every year runs a, what we call the Future Talents Program, where we bring in undergrads and graduate students to work at Merck for usually around 12 weeks during the summer. And we give them a, an idea of what it's like to work at Merck. They usually work in our laboratories. Uh, often those projects, uh, at least for the interns in my group, leads to publications. And these can be really helpful for their career, uh, both from a networking perspective and just a, a, a CV perspective. And so we had all these interns coming, uh, of course, because of the pandemic, none of them were able to actually come on site, uh, but, but Merck honored the commitment to have the internships still happen. And so we had to be creative about what kind of assignments we could find. And so I spoke to, to Danny and I, and, I, and I asked her what she thought about maybe, you know, getting an intern to work with us to, to start a podcast. And at the time, we didn't really have... A, great vision for what the podcast would be and, and ultimately what it would become. At first, it was just sort of generally thinking about content that would be of interest to other people working in the field or graduate students that are considering careers in pharma. And then we just, you know, had an intern. Um, his name was Jimmy. He's now a graduate student at uh, Baylor, I think. And he worked, you know, early on to sort of set up sort of a structure for how we were going to prepare for these things, you know, meet with the guests and figure out what we would talk about. He did some editing early on. Um, and, you know, the summer really flew by. I think it was a good experience for him. Um, it was certainly a, a learning experience for Danny and I. And then, and then we had, I think, four recordings by the time it was all said and done. And we sat down with some of the communications folks um, in, in Merck Research Labs communications and corporate communications. You know, we wanted a podcast for ourselves, but all the content is Merck Chemistry content. So we had to be sensitive to the corporation. Um, and they actually gave us great feedback. They were like, you guys have great chemistry. We really like the sort of funky nature of what you guys are talking about. But, you know, two of these podcasts are really bad and one of them is way too long. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, thanks for the feedback. But you know what? It, they were like, you have to find a niche. You have to pick a format so people know what you're about. And then they're going to come back to your format, right? Um, and so... We ended up scrapping, I think, three of the four uh, podcasts. One of them we repurposed as one of these shorts afterwards where we just took out like a 10-minute clip. And then we, 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 we built a lot more structure into the way that we were recording since then. So, of course, the intern's gone now. And Danny and I are, are sort of sustaining this by ourselves. We have, we have help from uh, um, a professional editor, so someone that we can actually work with um, through the Merck Creative Studios and, and they help us and they give us great advice. And it's, it's just been a lot of fun, I would say, um, you know, to, to do something with a colleague like Danny, who's um, I'm sure you can tell from the audio alone is, is a fantastic coworker and she's extremely positive and she brings me a lot of energy. But then I think it's also been, you know, probably more well-received than I had expected. I think um, there, there were a lot, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I think the guests that come on um, to the podcast and talk about, you know, the, the format is essentially we have a Merck scientist come on or a few Merck scientists come on and they tell us about a paper they wrote, right? So it's almost like a lit club, like you can basically download the paper, read it, and then you can hear the person talk about it. And we try to focus on the things that aren't in the paper, right? So like, where did this idea come from and what it's like to run that reaction? Like we have an episode that's dropping 
um, next week where we, someone's running an enzymatic reaction. And uh, we asked them, like, you know, for people out there who've never run an enzymatic reaction, like, what, what's that like? Like, tell us about that, right? So I think it's, it gives people some insight into what it's like to work in pharma. It gives them an insight into how we think about our publication strategy and how we publish. I mean, that's a differentiating attribute of, of Merck. And I think people often wonder why we do it. Um, and I think it's been it's been great fun to do. And, 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 and it sounds like people like it. So we'll keep doing it. Yeah, please keep doing it. Uh, we still miss uh, Periodic Bagel, which I know you, you've been a guest uh, yes. on our podcast too. So this is another replacement. Every every yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. has its own space and, and its own place, but it's it's a great mm. and, and it's a, it's a good opportunity to learn more about Mark chemistry and, and how mm. people get this creative idea. So it's it's really useful. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're probably gonna try to engage the audience more as well. I, the, the, the anchor platform allows people to call in questions. And so, you know, we're looking for people to start making use of that feature so that they can um, help seed topics for us. You know, we, we have lots of things that we're excited about and we want to talk about, but I would love even more to hear from folks like, hey, like, tell us more about this, right? Or we want to learn more about that. And we've, we've gotten a little feedback lately. I mean, certainly, a significant portion of our audience are sort of 23 to 27 year olds. And so essentially grad students, right? And so we, we're trying to make sure that um, we're giving them as much information about what it's like to interview for a job, what it's like when you start, you know, so we, we, we're having younger folks come on the podcast to speak to that a little bit. But if there are other topics that people out there want to hear about, just, you know, shoot us an email at the, the podcast email or leave us a voicemail on the platform. So I guess one of the other things that we, we haven't touched, but I think it's very important to touch is, uh, so we, we talked with, we had uh, Kim Jobber as one of our guests as well. We talked about interviewing and, and the tips for, for that as well. But I think uh, it will be more uh, relatable to ask you, uh, what is it, how, how to prepare for an interview for Merck, for anyone who is like Merck specific interviews and, and what are people looking for? And if anyone will at some point or right now is preparing for an interview, how to help? help them yeah i mean i think i can tell you a little bit about the structure of the interview right and this is probably pretty close to what it's like pharma wide but i'll you know I'll, I'll reserve my comments to merck specifically so typically the day starts with a scientific seminar where you talk about your work that will usually be a one hour slot but the expectation is that your seminar should probably not exceed around 45 minutes because there tends to be a robust question period and that's especially true you know, when people interview in my group, there's a good, you know, it's like being at a Gordon research conference. There's going to be like 10, 15 minutes of questions when you're done. And people are genuinely interested and they want to learn from you. Uh, and that's the start of the day for most people. I, you know, it, during during the pandemic, given given schedules and the challenges of, of doing interviews virtually, some people gave their seminars late in the day, especially when we were interviewing people from the West Coast. And so it didn't really make sense to ask them to wake up at 5 a.m. to give a seminar but. Um, and then the rest of your day is essentially spent meeting with uh, members of our recruiting committee, which are all practicing scientists uh, or directors in the department. Um, and these are people that are going to be future peers, essentially, right? And they want to ascertain um, what kind of coworker you're going to be, how you think about problems, what are some of the things that you're likely to be good at, and what are some of the things that we can help you get better at once you get here. And so um, the types of questions that come up there are often around sort of your decision-making scientifically, like why did you do something when you did it or what else did you consider? There's gonna be a lot of questions that deal with sort of how you make others better around you, right? Uh, ultimately, 
pharmaceutical research and development is a team sport. Um, and uh, we need to make sure that people that come in are going to sort of augment the organization as a whole. Um, there's people that sort of have questions they love to ask, right? Whether it's about mentoring an undergrad or if you were a postdoc, like kind of how you saw your role as a leader of the group. Um, there might be specific questions around decisions that you've made in the past. Like why did you pursue a PhD at this institution? Or why did you decide to do a postdoc uh, and, and where? So that people kind of get a sense of what drives you. Um, and then there's going to be questions about, you know, how well you're doing in terms of a citizen of, uh, you know, of the department in terms of diversity and inclusion, right? Like, do you think about that? Is that something that uh, you can bring to the department? I think that, you know, science and especially chemistry is, is, is definitely tilted, um, you know, in terms of demographics. And we want to make sure that we give, uh, that, that we have an environment that's inclusive. And so when we bring people in, we want to make sure that they have that mindset as well. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that the rest of the day brings. Usually there's a lunch with uh, a small group of people that usually just started or are in their first few years. Um, and uh, we ask those people for their opinion. It's sort of like, hey, you had lunch with this person. You talked to them for an hour or two. How did that go? And, and what, did you, what did you like about that? You know? Oh, here's the... Hey, buddy. Oh. So my son just interrupted us. That's okay. Hello. You want to say hi? Say hi. Hi. Nice to meet Hello. you. What's this your name? This is Sebastian. What's your name? Yeah. They can't hear you Hello, when you're Sebastian. talking to children. <laughs> Do you need something? <laughs> you're good? Okay. You just want to say good morning? Right. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Um, sorry, where were we? We were talking about bringing people in, right? Lunch, yeah, mm -hmm. lunch and you. Oh yeah, the lunch. Yeah, so the lunch yeah. with um, yeah. So you come. So maybe I'll restart that part. So yeah. usually you come in, and uh, you'll you'll have lunch with a few new hires, and we do ask those people sort of you know how did that go, and, and they, they usually present you some some of their work, um, and the idea is to see how engaged you are and group meeting that they have with those people and then they take them to lunch and then uh, when people do on-site interviews we also do dinner uh, the, the day before and that's usually more with some of the more senior folks um, so again we try to um, we try to get an impression of who you are and, and how you would be as a both a scientist and as a colleague um, Becky Ruck and I actually wrote an article about this for senior news there's a senior news uh, newsletter about um, getting a job and Becky and I wrote uh, uh, we wrote an article about acing the interview. So I, I think if people are interested, um, you know, that probably has a lot of perspectives that, that I've just talked about here. Oh, fantastic. That's, uh, I think that's really interesting. And I think I don't know how much that applies to those in the UK. Um, if there's a similar process, if you're aware of that. Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming it's pretty similar. Um, I remember Merck used to have a site uh, in the UK. And as you know, Merck in the UK is called MSD. Um, and uh, so MSD UK now has a site in London uh, that just started and, and they've been hiring. I, um, I haven't, uh, it's a discovery site and we just hired our first process chemist there. Um, and, and the interview part of, of his job was very similar to ours because we interviewed him like we would if, if he was coming here. Um, I've heard that in the UK, there's often more of the sort of problem solving at the board type questions when people come in. And that's certainly how it was at Merck Frost in Canada. Like when I interviewed at Merck Frost, you're basically at the board doing problems for most of the day. Like people would come in and they would ask you for a mechanism or they would draw a molecule and ask for retrosynthesis. I think 
um, if you're interviewing somewhere, I think it's really good practice to uh, leverage your host. Right, so usually they'll assign you a host, this person who's going to be kind of setting you up for the day and that are going to be presenting you uh, to the audience. Um, and they might even be taking you out to dinner. I, I highly encourage people to leverage the host. So ask them about what the interview is going to be like, what are likely to be the types of things that are expected of you in the interview. And, and if you have the expectation that you're going to be at the board doing problems, you probably want to practice that so that you have so you don't you don't sort of succumb to the pressure and just sort of how you work through a problem out loud at the board. Um, we don't really do a lot of that, but I've heard that some places do it. And certainly in the past, the MSD um, UK site in Hottesden used to do it that way. Uh, and that's how it was in Montreal. I also highly recommend, um, I'll, I'll call it snooping on your interview panel. So usually you're going to get a list of interview interviewees um, and they will, or interviewers, I should say. And, um, and you can go on their LinkedIn page, figure out where they're from, what they've done, maybe pull out some of their recent papers. Like I think uh, doing your homework on the people that are ultimately going to be asking you questions is a, is, is, is a good practice. And I think is expected. It's not like people are going to be like, what's this person doing? Um, I, so every time I'm on an interview panel, I always see a few pings on my LinkedIn because people are going to check, check it out. Um, and, and I think, I think that's a, a really, really smart thing to do, but we always tell people like, we tell our hosts to help people put a good talk together. So even sharing your talk in advance with your host and saying like, hey, this is what I'm planning. They might be able to give you some feedback. Like this part, people are gonna be more interested in. This part, you could take it out or maybe you wanna reorder these two stories. And that's an amazing opportunity to get better even before you get there, right? And I, I, I think people probably underutilize that resource. And, and if you're interviewing somewhere else and you ask your host if they'd be willing to review their slides and they say no, then just tell them that at Merck we let people do that and see if that changes their mind. Yeah, no, the importance of a proactive approach just generally, I think, is, yeah, really important. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is one of these bizarre things where people, people think that part of the interview is like sort of uncovering like that someone is a lot less good in person than they are on paper, right? Like, so they don't want to help you at all with the interview. I, I think that's absolutely ridiculous, right? If, if we're inviting you on site, the odds of you getting a job are pretty high, right? Like we probably hire like a third of the people we bring on site, or at least they get an offer, maybe even half, right? So the bar for just getting in the door is really high. So you're gonna have to look good on paper to be able to get there, right? Um, because there's just so many people to choose from. But then from there, we want to see your best self. Like we wanna see you on your best day. Right, um, and we want and we want you to have a good interview day. Right, we don't want you to be on an off day and then all of us walk away deciding not to hire you just because you had an off day. So, I think it's important to change the mindset on that. We're not trying to surprise people. We're not trying to catch someone in a lie. Right, we assume that if you have a strong, um, you know, on paper package and that includes strong reference letters and, and a track record of success with your research, then you know we want you to do well when you interview. Thank you for sharing it, it will be helpful I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people mm. yeah interesting insights for sure so before we finish up we always finish with a philosophical question we've got a random question for you just trying to change, change tack a bit so what would be a harry potter house and, and why oh harry potter house man well that's fun i mean i so yeah, I, I um, yeah, 
I don't know that I know enough about the characteristics of all the Harry Potter houses to choose from. Um, but I think there's something about the boldness anyway that they portray uh, the Gryffindors as that I think would probably align with me. Like I'm a, I'm a risk taker. Like I'm the kind of person who puts themselves out there. Um, I like to be at the front of things, at the forefront of things, if you will. And, and, um, and I, I do look for those opportunities where, you know, both myself and my organization can, can play an important role, uh, whether it's in the field of chemistry or influencing diversity and inclusion. Um, I feel like um, that's an important characteristic of mine. So maybe that courage that, that it takes to do that kind of stuff probably aligns best with Gryffindor. But but to be fair, I, I don't know that I know enough about all the characteristics to, to really be able to make that call. Mm-hmm. No, I, I personally agree. I'm also Gryffindor. I think I've done one of those tests and it says I'm Gryffindor oh, yeah. on that. So yeah, yeah. What about what about you, Medina? I I haven't watched. I, it's been a while since I watched it, so again, I'm not like super familiar. But I, I remember that Hermione was like my role model when I was a kid. I was like, oh, I want to be like Hermione. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. Ass- there you go. I would assume. <laughs> so we're all Gryffindors. Great. <laughs> Talking about audio audiobooks, those are brilliant audiobooks. Stephen Fry. If yes. You, people haven't listened to them. There. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just yeah. he's great. I, so yeah, when my son was in grade five, I think we listened to the whole series. So he was reading the book. And then we would listen to it, um, and uh, and then over time we just he just we plowed through the whole series. Yeah, those are very very well produced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there's something about winter that kind of makes me want to just go back to like binge watching Harry Potter. That's a good yeah. winter activity, you know. I love it. It's a it. good uh, Christmas vacation binge, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And oh, um, are we finish up with philosophical question, or do we want to wrap up, Henry? What What are your thoughts? Uh, we we can finish on the philosophical question. Sure. I think uh, it's picking us a good one. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. So um, our philosophical question was, uh, what is your best tip for making the world a better place? Ooh. Wow, that's that's very philosophical. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, okay, so I think that. Um, you can only make the world a better place if you're taking a strength or a talent and applying that productively, right? I think it's going to be really difficult for people to have an impact in the world by doing something they're not good at, they're not passionate about, that doesn't come to them at least somewhat naturally. And by that, I don't mean like, oh, I'm really good at hitting a golf ball, so I'm going to change the world by playing golf, right? I'm talking about things like communication, strategy, um, you know, uh, restorative strengths, people who are really interested in problems, right? Like there are sort of innate patterns of behavior that we all have. And I think what I've come to realize over the last 10 years or so is that when you apply those talents to something meaningful, uh, not only will you be energized by it, um, but you're more likely to be successful. And so, you know, my challenge to everyone out there is to do a little bit of work to figure out what your strengths are and then find a way to design your life, design your objectives, whatever they are, uh, to do something that uh, you're able to do that, that or leverage your strengths every day. And I think to me, looking back on it now, even though it wasn't really deliberate at the time, I think much of my success has come from the fact that most days I come to work and I can leverage several of my strengths productively. And, and ultimately, uh, as, as my Twitter bio says, you know, I think that one reaction can change the world and I get to run reactions or at least lead a team that runs reactions every day and, and bring new medicines to the world. And so that's how I'm trying to change the world. But 
it doesn't mean that that's how everybody needs to do it, but it does play to my strengths. And I think that's a really important thing that a lot of people don't realize. So I'm going to challenge everyone to identify their strengths and then to use them every day. Mm. No, I think that's a brilliant place to end on. Yeah. So just play, play to your strengths pretty much. It's uh, definitely. Absolutely. Oh, amazing. So last thing we always ask people, if they want to get in touch with you, where's the best place to get in touch? I mean, you touched on it, so I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely the easiest place to get in touch with me is via uh, Twitter. Um, so at Dr. Elsa Square on Twitter, my DMs are open. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I usually reply to most messages that I get. Um, you can also contact uh, the pod at Farm to Table pod. Um, if you want to ask questions or give suggestions on the podcast, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, although I don't think my, my messages are open to non connections. And so you'd probably be better off connecting with me on Twitter first, uh, so that I know who you are, because otherwise I just get too many random people trying to connect on LinkedIn. Brilliant. That's, uh, that's a great place to finish. So yeah, as, uh, Elsie said, if you want to connect with him, uh, do so on Twitter and don't forget to use the hashtags, uh, if you're cooking some nice food. I'm sure he'll give it a retweet. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you, I say if you want to follow us, you can over at Kevin Combo's Pod. I think it would be nice, maybe at some point, to do a collab between yourselves and uh, Palm to Table. I think it'd be uh, quite fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. Thank awesome. you. Cool. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for being an awesome guest. It's been uh, great mm -hmm. to learn more about kind of what you do. And brilliant. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Oh, you're welcome. Brilliant. I say thanks everyone for listening and uh, hope you have a great day. Yeah. See you soon.